the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Most everything we read in the gospel, most everything we receive as good news in the story of God, begins as scandal, an affront to logic. We know this about the incarnation, which might be considered a stumbling block. We know this about the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because in its own day and in ours, it is an affront to logic that God has undergone and overcome death. It turns out that on the occasion that we encounter a story in the Bible that does not offend some sensibility or another, it is because of our distance from the story or because of our assumed familiarity. We either aren't in on the joke or the joke seems to have lost its punch in repeated telling. But scripture is received by us from a strange and other world, a world not our own, and by people of whom we are a part only by the grace of God. I have been telling the story of Paul in the letter to the church in Rome in recent weeks, and the story we are receiving from him might be summed up this way. Our life joined to God's life forever. But there is another piece present in this story that we now need to make plain because it is what Paul does at this point in Romans. And when we add this piece, we get our life joined to God's life forever in the story of the people of Israel. The scandal we must here take account of is that somehow we, who are Gentiles, and therefore not of the people of Israel, were once outside of the promises to the people of God, but have been grafted on to these promises in our baptism and in the confession of faith we make in it, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, is the Lord. And yet, we are not at the center This is what we call Gentile inclusion, and it is a question with which a fair bit of the New Testament is concerned. How are we, not of the promises of the people of Israel, also joined to the life of God? That is part of the question that Paul is trying to answer. One of the problems and challenges with the lectionary is that it's really left out quite a bit of Paul's wondering and argument this week, preferring to give us his most quotable notables. So we're going to take a step back first. 
I want to explain very briefly, in big picture, what is at stake, because Christians have often forgotten about this central question of Gentile inclusion. In Christian history, and here is part of the argument, it has become common to make the claim that Israel had really screwed things up, and Jesus came to rectify them. The law, capital T, capital L, had always been inadequate, and by the time of Jesus had offered little more than a list of things to do or accomplish in order to win God's favor. And the religious leaders around Jesus were so enamored of the law that they couldn't even see the Messiah when he was right in front of them. So this is how the argument goes. Jesus replaces the law. Much of the Old Testament can be dispensed with or relativized. The church replaces Israel in the promises of God in a position that we now call supersessionism. And in the history of Christianity, this has been very problematic in at least two ways. First, in the way that it views Jewish people. It began quite early on when Jews were blamed for the death of Jesus. But one can also trace this forward to pogroms, the isolation of Jewish communities in ghettos, and of course, the Holocaust. And second, in the way that it allows Gentiles to presume that they are at the center of the story. And if you trace this line historically, it flows through the ages of discovery and exploration and the tragic encounters of white settlers with indigenous people in the Americas in their own attempt to establish a city on a hill. Now, neither of these positions, that is, the people of Israel are replaced by the church or that Gentiles are at the center, are supported in Paul. In Romans 9, right before our reading today, Paul writes that his kindred are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all. He follows the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, and it's so nice that this is following our lectionary for this summer. Paul is grappling with how the promises here traced through this story of Israel can now make sense as an offering even to Gentiles. What then are we to say, he writes, that Gentiles who have not strived for righteousness have attained it through faith, but the Israelites who did not strive for righteousness based on the law did not fulfill it? In this question, you can hear Paul reflecting on and working through his own and his readers' puzzlement. Those early Jewish Christians who are trying to figure out how the salvation offered through the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus, might mean salvation to the Jew and the Gentile alike. In what follows our reading today, Paul explains that God has not rejected the covenant that God made with the chosen people of Israel. They are elect as ever they were. It is by the gift and promise of God that this is so, and it is irrevocable. The law is relativized because it is put in its proper context. The law helps the people of God to live as the covenant people, in light of God being the God who brought the people of Israel up out of Egypt. And this is where Paul's claim would have been a scandal to his Jewish listeners. Jesus Christ is the end of the law. By this, he does not mean it's termination or turning over, as many have thought. Rather, it means that Jesus Christ is the proper end and the goal 
toward which the law is aiming. This is why Jesus is said to fulfill the law. To his Gentile listeners, he uses a metaphor that you might be familiar with, that of an olive tree whose branch is grafted on to the rootstock of an already planted and firmly established tree. But I won't get too much into that because I do not want to take the wind out of Brooks' sails next week. To both Jews and Gentiles, he reasons, the same Lord is Lord of all. I'm wanting to return back to our text today and to reground what might feel like an overly intellectual exercise and exploration of the significance of Gentile inclusion. The matter of Gentile inclusion is really important for Paul. It's found all over his journey in the book of Acts, for example. In Romans, the topic is centered in chapters 9 through 11, but we only have two Sundays of lectionary readings this week and next week from these three chapters. So today's 11 verses simultaneously feel to me like the heart of this section on Romans and also a kind of hodgepodge and collection of disjointed thoughts that we're supposed to make some sense of right in the middle. This is the section I memorized as a child in Awanas. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But when I memorized it this way, it was separated from its surrounding context of Romans and from this question about Gentile inclusion. I assumed that the verse was about me as an individual, that my salvation was about going to heaven when I died. Implicit in this assumption was the conviction that there was something I could do to obtain salvation by my own freedom, by my own agency, I could accomplish salvation separate from any story about who God is if I only prayed the sinner's prayer. Of course, I learned the stories of the Old Testament, but not that they had anything to do with salvation. But look at what happens in this frame. Salvation is granted by God, but it is done so in a reflexive response to my work and my confession. Look, too, at how this kind of salvation doesn't depend on being witness to the promises of God who brought Israel up out of slavery in Egypt and also brought Jesus up out of the grave. It isn't necessary to have the rest of the story. One needs Jesus, kind of, but he needn't be the Jewish Messiah. And this troubling line of thinking focuses on the importance of our faith, our individual faith in Jesus, but it does not do enough to center the faithfulness of Jesus, who is the fulfillment, but not the termination, the end, but not the end of God's salvific promises to Israel. God is acting on behalf of the promises God made from the very beginning and doing so in Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of Jesus is critical because the promises of the law are fulfilled and because the incorporation of Gentiles happens through his crucified and risen body, the body of the Jewish Messiah. And Gentile inclusion then becomes a lens for us for reading the whole of scripture and we can take a page out of God's repeated reminders to the people of Israel to remember that they once were strangers in Egypt. We too. We're strangers, Gentile strangers, once outside of God's vehicle of salvation, once outside of God's promises, and yet, through the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, 
we were and are incorporated into God's redemptive work. Our lives now joined with God's forever in the story of Israel. And it is this Jesus Christ who we confess with our lips and hold in our hearts. And for this, we give thanks and praise. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you.